0: Welcome to Zero Knowledge. I'm your host, Anna Rose. In this podcast, we will be exploring the latest in zero knowledge research and the decentralized web, as well as new paradigms that promise to change the way we interact and transact online. This week, Tarun and I chat with Succinct Labs. Guests Uma and John explain how they got interested in zero knowledge tech. We talk about their work at ZeroX PARC, as well as the goals of succinct Labs, that is to provide proof of consensus through SNARK-based light clients. Their offering acts a little bit like IBC, but in the Ethereum context. And we discuss the challenge of building this kind of light client on Ethereum, their first implementation linking Gnosis Chain to Ethereum, and how they imagine interacting in other cross-chain environments. Both Tarun and I are investors in the project, Tarun via Robot Ventures, myself through ZKV, and this is something that wasn't confirmed at the time of recording, so I thought I'd mention it here in the intro. Now, before we start in, I want to invite you to join the upcoming ZK Hack 3 a virtual multi-week event starting on November 22nd. It's all online, so you can join from wherever you are. It's the third time we run this event, and I can tell you ZKHack is a very special event. It's a combination of a multi-week series of long form workshops from the best teams working in ZK, teams like Aztec, Risk Zero, Alio, Enoma, Scroll, Mina, Sismo, and EF's Privacy and Scaling Exploration Group. These workshops are designed to onboard and show developers how they can start working with ZK DSLs, platforms, tools, and tech. Each workshop is different, so have a look at our schedule and sign up for the events that you are most interested in. Now the workshops are designed for all levels, but we at the same time have something for the experts or the folks who really want to challenge themselves. So every week, we release one of our ZK puzzles. That is a broken ZK system or protocol. Find the bug, submit an answer as quickly as you can, and you can rank on our leaderboard. We'll have three puzzles in total. And as mentioned, we release one each week. The winners of these will get prizes, spotlights, and a lot of cred within the community. So even if you aren't an expert, you still might want to give it a shot. Keep an eye out on our Twitter and in our Discord. Links are in the show notes. And yeah, I hope to see you there. Now, Tanya will share a little bit about this week's sponsor. Today's episode is sponsored by Aztec. Aztec Network is building the first privacy-enabled ZK rollup on Ethereum. The team is proud to announce Noir, the world's first universal ZK language. Noir makes it safe and intuitive to write privacy-preserving ZK circuits. Aztec is now hiring engineers and cryptographers to build the execution layer, supporting Noir's private smart contracts. Join the team making private Ethereum a reality. You can learn more by visiting Aztec.network forward slash careers. That's Aztec.network forward slash careers. So thanks again, Aztec. And now here's our episode. Today, Tarun and I are here with the folks from Succinct. Welcome Uma and John to the show.
1: Hello. It's good to be here.
2: Yeah, thank you so much for having us.
0: It would be great to hear a little bit about the two of you. And obviously, we're going to be getting into Succinct. I want to hear, like, at what point did you get excited about ZK? Because I feel like this your journey is pretty fresh, right? Like, you got in this year.
1: I started working on ZK-related stuff, actually, around this time last year. Cool. I'm really good friends with uh, the person who runs Xerox Park, GubSheep. I think is his handle. Mm -hmm. And yeah, we know each other for for a very long time. And so he was the one who originally pulled me in, told me about ZK. And that's how I started. And when I started, I was actually working on stuff related to ZK identity. So I was working on an anonymous message board and other fun kind of anonymous social experiments. And then decided to do something more in infrastructure. um, And that was like more technically meaty but i've been working on zk stuff since i guess like for a year now i'd say
0: cool and john what pulled you in yeah on my end i
2: was like um really interested in like machine learning and database systems and yeah throughout while i was doing this i was actually working with this math professor at u chicago called
3: um, Yi. um you should definitely interview him and jonathan sometime wait wasn't but, he wasn't he on at some point oh no 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 we had his collaborator
0: I don't know. Wait, oh. Yi. Ye... Uh,
3: what's, what's his, his last... name? The guy who's at San Jose. Yeah, yeah. No, no, no. What's Yi's friend? Uh, yeah. the guy who, like, oh, the consensus the guy. Gaspar... The consensus yeah. guy. Yeah, Gasper. Oh, yeah. I his name okay. too. Yeah, Yi Ye came up during that episode. Oh, also, hi. I'm on this episode. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so
2: I was like doing machine learning research with Yi, and then separately, I had gone down this like huge rabbit hole in crypto because I thought it was just like super cool, both from like the system side and theoretically. And then he actually suggested I look really into ZK. I hadn't really looked into it at this point. And he referred me to, like, the Xerox Park folks, and I actually ended up spending a summer there. And that's, like, where I met Uma, and my whole ZK adventure began. When was that? That was around May, I think. Yeah, I'd actually quit my, like, original plans for the summer to do ZK with Xerox
0: Park. What is, what's it like to join the ZK space right now? You joined this summer, John. Like, what does it feel like joining this industry? What does it look like as you as you get onboarded? Is it complicated? Industry, is it easy? Industry
3: air quotes.
0: <laughs> industry <laughs> space. Um, but yeah.
3: <laughs> yeah, I think it's a really
2: exciting time right now. I mean, I think I was, I had like basically the perfect background to get started in ZK. Like I had a strong math and CS background. And I think those are like strong prerequisites for getting to the space. But, you know, there's a lot of really good learning materials. You know, actually, like, Xerox Park has this website called learn.xeroxpark.org that I'd recommend for anyone, like, getting started with ZK. He posted Mm. all, like, the lectures he did for his ZK learning group. But at the same time, it's really exciting because there's all these new frameworks, all these new proving systems, and the design space for how you could even build the same ZK system is so large that I think actually this space like, really reminds me of when I used to do like, research in academia, in the sense that you know, you really have to like, go deep, you have to read the code itself and the papers itself to like, figure out what's really going on.
0: Mm. And Uma, you've been in it for a year. When you joined, like, yeah, wh- how did you take it? What did you think about the, the space?
1: Yeah, I think similar to John, I also had the perfect background for it. Uh, In high school, I was super into math. I was actually reading about elliptic curves. And, you know, I was very into number theory in high school and then, you know, continued some of that in college. And so it's kind of funny that it's now coming back uh, with the stuff I'm doing full time with, you know, Mm. ZK. I think, like John said, the space is super exciting. It feels very new. It feels very underexplored. There's new proving systems that are coming out and getting published, you know, every month. Uh, there's just so much activity on, you know, people discovering what the possibilities are. And it feels like a big community that where everyone knows each other since it's still or not a big community. It's a small community where everyone knows each other. Mm. Uh, so that I think is also pretty fun because you see the same people over and over again and you can kind of get to know them over time. Do you
0: feel like are you in ZK or are you in blockchain? Like, did you just enter the blockchain space or the ZK space? <laughs> I know this is a bit of a weird question, but I do feel like there's this slight shift. There's a lot of people now that are coming just through ZK. They're not necessarily coming, you know, from other projects that have been around for a while.
3: Are you, You're really asking them, are they DGENs or not? <laughs> <laughs> Were or are you Gens?
0: <laughs> Were you or have you ever been?
1: <laughs> a DGEN. I think personally I have, I like the DGEN spirit. Um, <laughs> I don't know if I'm personally a DGEN, but I, I think I like crypto's values and ideology. I think I wouldn't be in this space. You know, I, I don't think it's sufficient to just think, oh, just the ZK math is cool or something like that. I think for me, like, I also really align with the values of the space uh, more broadly. And ZK is such a perfect, or ZK snarks are such a perfect fit for blockchain, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Like, you can get privacy on this public ledger and then you can get scalability on this decentralized ledger and so because it's such a perfect fit i think it's hard to have one without the other
2: yeah i think on my end i feel like um i definitely got originally nerd psyched by crypto um by itself Mm -hmm. like separate from zk and i think like what really got me into crypto was like the concept of DeFi, um like how cool amms work actually like one point i like emailed guermo to do like cffm research with him,
3: and (laughs) But I think... And then Rug um, pulled him. Yeah, Rug. pulled him. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he, don't worry, he told but, me. He was, like, <laughs> he was like, there's this undergrad. I remember he's like, there, there's this undergrad who emailed me, and then he disappeared. <laughs> oh, no. Uh,
2: uh, but I think... ZK has largely advanced because there's been so much interest in the ZK EVM. Like, I think the ZK EVM teams, like, single-handedly moved all this, like, research, like, five years forward in terms of, like, productionizing it. Mm. And I think now we're starting to see applications of, like, ZK, like, outside crypto. And I think, like, the folks at, like, Risk Zero are definitely, like, candidates for this. I think there's this whole field of, like, ZKML that's brewing uh, right yep. now. And I think... For the short term, probably applications of ZK will be largely blockchain, because blockchains are one of the few systems that really care about accountability, and it's like a really obvious use case. But I think we're just
3: getting to the tip of the iceberg for what's possible. Mm. So so actually, uh, one, one, you know, instead of the uh, blockchain versus ZK question, I think a more pertinent question is, both of you came from ML... Which is like the most centralizing anti privacy uh, technology and movement that exists on this planet. Um, so, like, what made you make the pivot? That's like a that's a big jump from the uh, from that world to this world.
1: Wow, that's uh, strong opinions on ML. I still personally like ML. A lot of my <laughs> friends do it, so I can't. Sorry, those were those were it. those
3: were my opinions, not. <laughs> <laughs> um,
1: yeah, I think for me, honestly. Crypto and its ideology, and kind of crypto feels very underexplored. With ML, I think, as you said, it is very centralizing, especially with large language models. Having a billion dollars to throw at GPUs to train your huge model is a huge advantage. And crypto feels more of this renegade movement where it's not super clear what's going to happen. You know, there's still so much. Undiscovered stuff. People trying new things with ML. It feels more clear, like what you can do with it. Like now, people can see, oh, now I can train this language model to mimic, you know, X, Y, Z, or whether that's like a book or emails or whatever else. And especially with the image stuff, like Dolly. I also think it's really cool. But I think with crypto, there's a lot more emergent behavior that is a lot more interesting and unique in some ways. Um, and I think that, to me, that was very inspiring. It felt like. You don't know what's going to happen here. And it's very exciting.
0: It sounds a bit like to work in ML, you're probably going to be working on a project. Whereas because there's so much space in our space, you can actually do your own project. Like you have founded a company. Would you be able to do something like that in ML? Do you think like right now?
1: Yeah, probably. I mean, there's there's a lot of ML people founding companies right now with especially all the generative AI stuff. So yeah, I think that that's also very exciting.
2: Yeah, I think the difference is, like, in crypto, it's much easier as a, as an individual to have a much higher leveraged impact into the space, just because it's still so small, still so early. I think in AI, like, you just need a lot of money, you need a lot of engineers, unless you have, like, some super great idea. But even mm-hmm. then, I think there's
3: a lot more low-hanging fruit in this space. I, I think the bar is also a lot higher to, like, go from zero to something in ML. in In the sense that, like, there's a little, like even though it's like you know realistically like not that old of a field, there's still some feeling that you need to have some like apprenticeship logos on your resume like worked at deep mind worked at fair like did x or y like like whereas in crypto it's like literally you could just be an anon anime character and like you know start a project
1: i think the vibes are better in crypto
3: Yeah, like another thing
2: in crypto is like I think people have like something they want to prove to the rest of the world and like they want to say, oh, you're wrong and I'm right. I think in machine learning, like that doesn't exist. Like no one's trying to like, there's no like interesting drama going on Twitter often. Crypto (laughs) is just way more interesting on that front.
3: I mean, all the drama in AI is just like, who raised more money for GP? (laughs) Uh. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Or AI ethics uh fight. Yeah. Where it's yeah, like crypto extent. somehow seems to have avoided that part of this the sphere for the mo- which is like a funny trade-off.
0: Mm. You both went through the Xerox Park program kind of community. Tell me a little bit about like what it is to work in there. How does it work? This might actually be cool for our listeners who might be interested to get involved. Like how does one join that community?
1: Yeah, I think Xerox Park is basically this r&d org for applied cryptography so also they have some people working on autonomous worlds and i think they're really modeled after the ethereum foundation from my understanding like the whole idea is to empower other teams and other people in the ecosystem to go explore and like build and have a really nice community environment that's very collaborative for everyone to explore ideas together and figure out like what's interesting and cool and you know i think uh, also a very strong core value of theirs is to you know not have anything that's super grifty or things like that. So, Mm -hmm. um, you know, I'm actually like quite good friends with the founder and like other people in the community. So for me over the summer, being working with other people in the community, it was just really fun because it was basically like, we're working on really cool stuff with all our friends and we get to Mm -hmm. hang out and, um, it's really good energy. And yeah, obviously I met John there, which was amazing.
2: Yeah, totally agree. I think gub sheep, I don't know why we're not actually saying his name.
1: No, 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 he's <laughs> Gubsheep.
0: He's been on the show. He's Gubsheep. As okay. Gub-sheep. He okay. used to be on the show with a different name, but now he's Gubsheep on the show. Uh, okay,
1: you know, Gubsheep.
2: He's, yeah, he's done a really great job like cultivating the community and like like a sense of like culture of like strong collaboration and like making it really easy like for example for me for example to like onboard into the whole ZK space mm-hmm. and get to talk to like and learn from like the smartest people. So I think for me it was like a really instrumental part of my ZK journey and I'm super mm-hmm. thankful.
0: I do actually want to ask though, what's the hardest part you found as you joined, like starting fresh in zk today with the documentation that exists, the resources that exist? What's hard?
2: Yeah, I think some of the tooling is a little bit buggy.
3: I think. Okay. I Me mean, had to
0: deal <laughs> to with, to say a lot the of,
1: least,
3: <laughs> a lot of weird bugs okay what's your what's your all-time favorite bug that you've run into and by favorite you can interpret it as mm. you thought it was enlightening at the end or it was infuriating and you wasted a week and it turned out you missed a quotation mark somewhere
1: <laughs> oh john i feel like we're thinking of the same thing <laughs> yeah oh wow
3: there is a hear it. At- wait, wait
2: i think we can't name the library though okay okay the library is the library.
1: overall amazing the library is okay. overall amazing, but there's a certain library we were using, and it has this property where if you initialize a variable and you don't use a certain part of the variable, it won't throw an error. Like, at compile time, it will just throw a runtime error, but the runtime error does not really tell you anything about the error. It just says seg fault, <laughs> And so we spent a week, you know...
2: No, I think it was like a week and a half. I mean, well, we weren't like get- actively doing it, but...
1: Like every night, I would spend a few hours looking at the seg fault, not understanding what was going on. John was deep in like GDB. I was just looking at the code. And one night I was like, okay, I'm going to stay awake until I figure this out. <laughs> so I stayed awake until 4am. And I realized, you know, we had, ini- we had initialized an array of size 100, but we were only using 99 of the variables. And that was causing this error. And so I changed, it was one character. I just initialized, it, I changed 100 to 99. And then it worked.
0: Did you tell somebody?
1: Yes, we did. We did. They, I think they <laughs> fixed it.
0: Okay. Or
3: did they at least add an error message, like a helpful <laughs> error message, I feel
1: like. I think they fixed it, because I haven't run into that again, yeah. but...
2: You really can't blame them, though, because, like, they're doing it all open source, and it's like, I don't I don't know,
3: like, what, if they're even getting paid to do it, so...
1: Yeah, yeah, it's, it's a heroic effort from them, so...
3: Someone needs to make coin fessions like the thing where people mm-hmm. confess their uh their sins uh in crypto <laughs> before <sins>. bugs <laughs> for bugs and features. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, you guys worked on coin fessions.
1: Oh yeah. One of our in a previous life we were working on an anonymous message board.
0: Oh.
3: With ZK. With ZK. At
1: Xerox Park, right? Yeah, yeah.
0: Cool. I actually wanted to ask you, Uma, about like the iterations, like the problems you started on, ID, mm-hmm. like other problems. Um, I know we we met about like a different project too, like some time ago. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about how you got to the problem you're working on. What was your pathway there?
1: Yeah. So the original stuff I was working on was, you know, building one of the early experiments was ZK Message. So it was this anonymous message board where you could kind of post as one of N members in a group. So you'd have like a ZK proof that you belong in this group without revealing who you are. And then you can post messages tied to that identity without revealing your exact person. I still think it's a really, really cool concept. And there's been several evolutions and iterations of the idea that, you know, some of them I was working on, some of them are with different people that used to be collaborators. I thought that stuff was very fun and very interesting. Um, But I think for me, I really like solving really hard, challenging technical and engineering problems. And I think there with ZK identity or ZK social kind of in air quotes as like a category, I guess. I think it's a really fun category, but I think the ZK part is actually very simple. Like Mm -hmm. uh, it's already been kind of built. It's not anything complicated. It's more about building this like product experience that's going to go viral or, you know, whatever other goal you might have around it. And for me, I wanted to do something just like much more technical engineering heavy. And so ZK for infrastructure, I think was just something I wanted to explore and, you know, and ended up working on and found very, very interesting and very, very compelling.
0: Nice. Well, I think this is a really good moment for us to define what Succinct is. Before we started, I tried to call it a ZK bridge and you quickly corrected me. So I want to hear from you what is Succinct doing and actually what kind of what category do you put yourselves in?
1: Yeah, so what we're building is a trust minimized interoperability layer for blockchains, you know, including Ethereum and other blockchains to be able to communicate with each other in a native way. So the tool we use to accomplish this is, you know, succinct to non-interactive proofs. And then I think ZK has become this like catch-all term on Twitter to Refer to these like succinct proofs, so people will refer to them as zk proofs or zk snarks. When
0: they're sometimes just snarks and not zk. Exactly. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So I think you know, with the zk snark, you can kind of get two things: the zk part, the zero-knowledge part, lets you kind of hide the inputs into the function you're proving, and the succinctness part gives you scalability. Mm-hmm. So the succinctness lets you have this like succinct proof that you know some computation is has resulted in a certain answer, uh, and you know, we're using the succinctness properties to basically scale verification of consensus. So what we're doing, right, at the highest level is, you know, if we have a source chain and a target chain that are trying to communicate, we'll verify the consensus of the source chain in the execution layer of the target chain. And then once you can verify the consensus of a source chain in the execution layer, then you have access to the block header. And once you have access to the block header, you can prove anything about what happened on the source chain in the context of the target chain and take actions accordingly and vice versa. And you can pass arbitrary messages and you know you can build a token bridge. You can just do whatever you want with this communication. There's no ZK in it. Like we are using succinctness to scale this expensive computation of verifying consensus. And mm-hmm. that's why the company is called succinct. You know, I was looking at all the zk companies uh, today, like, and all of them have like zk Start with the in their letter name.
0: zk, yeah. yeah, like like everything I do. Fair,
3: yeah. And- <laughs> I mean, I mean, I mean crypto, crypto. You know, while I uh, admire the ability to fork everything and copy everything, there is this like tendency to have no originality in naming. Like every L one has. Hoka X, Soul X, Cosmo X, and there's like a million of the same like name things. And I feel like ZK is just like it's the bear market be like version that. of that. It's starting to be like Yeah. That.
0: Although I okay, I'm gonna just give myself a little credit that it, when I started with the ZK naming, there weren't that many. Just FYI. True. But yes. yeah, you, were, you were I totally you were I totally agree that like it sort yeah. of has there's projects now that are called ZK that aren't ZK. But I know success
3: for the concept. Yeah, like a concept has reached success when it gets copied. You know, imitation is yeah, a form of flattery. Totally.
0: Yeah, that's true. So. <laughs> but Uma, I wanna I wanna go back to what you were saying because like you just described like when you talk about the, that proving and so it being succinct. Are you talking about like clients though? Like are you talking about two like clients on two different networks talking to each other?
1: Yeah, that's exactly the idea. It's very similar to IBC's concept. Which is like light clients for interoperability. And then we're making light clients gas efficient enough for expensive block space chains like Ethereum, for example. Well
0: cool. and here you're not using any of like the economic games. You're not so it's not optimistic. It's pure cryptography. But like why is it different from I mean, I kind of know the answer, but like do ZK rollups do the same thing as what you're doing?
1: Yeah. So ZK rollups are using the succinctness property to scale execution. So in a ZK rollup, right? You're proving that I have some state of the world and then I applied a bunch of transactions and now this is the new state of the world and the proof is just proving I process the transactions correctly. I'm not sending random people random coins, things like that. Uh, So we're kind of using the similar properties for a different computation.
0: Mm. Where do you start with that though? Like, do you already have two chains that you're working with? Are you thinking of this as like chain agnostic and you're creating just the the ability for any network to do it. Like I'm kind of curious like, how customized these light clients actually have to be.
2: Yeah, so right now what we have is we spent all our time getting this sort of proof of consensus um, idea working for Ethereum. And in particular, right now what we have is this c- custom-made circuit that proves that a random subset of 512 Ethereum validators have signed off on a block header. And basically what this allows you to do is you can verify these proofs on any other execution environment. So that could be Solana, it could be Avalanche, it could be even your laptop. And this allows us to have basically trust minimized access to Ethereum state because what we do is essentially run a light client. Mm -hmm. So right now what we have is a unidirectional bridge essentially from Ethereum to any other chain. But in the limit, what we can do is we could, for example, do it for other ecosystems or other consensus protocols like Tendermint, and combining these two things would give you a two-way bridge.
0: When you say it's unidirectional, like where does a light client live in that case? So it's from Ethereum out. Are you saying it's a light client that people deploy outside of it that can talk to Ethereum?
2: Yeah. So essentially, we have like a smart contract that we can deploy on any chain that we want to run the light client on. And you basically want to run the like client on the chain that's receiving the messages because the like client essentially keeps track of a ledger of block headers. And the, the block headers essentially allow you to access state at any point in time.
0: Do those networks all have to be, or other chains have to be EVM?
2: So the contract we have right now is EVM. But theoretically, we could code it in any other language, including Move or whatever Solana and Cosmos use.
0: Okay. But what, what like prevented people from doing this? before is this a very hard problem has something changed that allows for this
2: i think a lot of people were actually thinking about this like i think kobe and atsella and george and George's were working on s- trying to like basically create some sort of light client uh bridge i think the cosmos people figure this i think, plumo, this, I
1: think yeah yeah it's called plumo yeah
2: and i think another thing is you know clearly the cosmos folks uh, thought this this light client bridges were a really great idea but i think Another thing that people generally haven't realized is, right, is like these blockchains as a nature of being these like distributed state machines already have an algorithm to agree on the state of the chain. So actually, if you really want to build like the maximally secure bridge, I would argue that some sort of like, like client based approach or some sort of approach where you verify the consensus algorithm itself in another blockchain really is like as far as you can get in terms of security. Mm-hmm. And I think this idea combined with the fact that, you know, the ZKVM teams have done a great job at demonstrating that these SNARKs are extremely scalable and you can do amazing things as much as running like entire execution environments with them. And if you combine these two things together, it comes clear that maybe something you can do is you can just verify the consensus algorithm of any consensus algorithm inside a SNARK and just verify that on-chain. And I think me and Uma were kind of at the perfect, arrived at the perfect time where snarks were becoming more usable. Um, This idea had been floating around, and we were basically able to put these two things together to create, I think, what's basically assisting.
1: You asked if it was hard to do. And I think, uh, yeah, the pain John and I experienced this summer to make the whole system work is an affirmative. Yeah, it's, it's definitely hard. It's painful. And yeah, like you mentioned, right, it's not as easily scalable per chain, like per chain, you want to add that has a different consensus mechanism, you have to implement a snark for its consensus. So it's not this, if you set up like a multi-sig bridge, it's easier because you can...
3: Well, you trust that the participants did the consensus.
1: Yeah, exactly. Correct. So it's a hard problem to do. And writing these circuits, while it has become easier over the past few years, thanks to the great work of the ZKVM teams and people like Zcash or, you know, whoever else has been working in that space and developing these libraries, it's still, their libraries are still really hard to use uh, to actually accomplish these goals.
2: I mean, I think there's actually this Twitter thread that me and Uma were like discussing it with like Georges and Kobe. But I think when we first started talking about our like client for Ethereum, some people on Twitter just couldn't believe it because they couldn't believe that the proving time for verifying these like BLS signatures, which is this elliptic curve that Ethereum uses, could be verified in a snark in like a reasonable amount of time. So I think even like six months ago, a lot of people didn't think that this idea was actually possible.
0: Is there some work that's been happening like libraries or innovations or something that allowed for that. Is it because enough people are going over this territory? The engineering is just getting like more efficient. Like, I, how did you do that?
3: Well, I I would also maybe ask add one thing, which is like, I think in the Plumo case, they were going for a very different like end use case, right? They wanted to support a mobile wallet. They wanted to support Celo, and like it had slightly different consensus properties there were sort of like a lot of things that went into that that like maybe like made it not obvious to see or like easy to see how to separate those from like the zk or succinctness pieces in because you're trying to like package everything as one thing for a mobile wallet which like adds in a lot of other concerns i think stripping it down to the bare minimum and then also like yeah being able to take advantage of a lot of the work done over time compounds much faster and also I think like Kobe and George's hadn't worked on that since 2020, right? Yeah, 2 years be. is a lo- is is kind of a long time. Yeah, right? totally. like, it, especially when you're having like these like more like exponential increases in performance due to just like hey, we like optimize caching or and yeah. stuff like that.
1: Yeah, totally. I think there was a couple of things so Uh, As part of proving this, like these BLS signatures, you need to do non-native field arithmetic. Like the elliptic curve that the SNARK uses is different than the elliptic curve the signatures are being proven in. And doing non-native field arithmetic is just, it's honestly pretty ugly inside a SNARK. And I think a lot of people were just averse to, you know, doing something like that. And I think it turns out when you actually do it and you implement a bunch of optimizations, it actually does become like pretty possible to get a proving time that is realistic like it's not going to be a proving time that's you know one second but it actually is you know still quite feasible and we actually have like an end-to-end working demo of a bridge today from ethereum and we're using a testnet so go early to gnosis chain but really it could be from ethereum to any other chain and that's you know fairly performant like you know you don't have to wait two hours or three hours for your assets to transfer you know it could be like it's a couple minutes on top of the Ethereum finality delay. Mm.
0: That was actually my question about like using cryptography for a bridge, using light clients. Like there's reasons that there are like optimistic bridges and these things. Like there's this sense that it's supposed to be faster or somehow cheaper. Like are there trade-offs that come along with what you've built? Or do you feel like because you've been able to get that size down or speed, like since you've been able to optimize it so much, Is it actually like on par with those other solutions at this point?
1: Yeah. So compared to an optimistic solution, it's actually much faster because in an optimistic solution, you have to wait for this challenge period where anyone can like issue a fraud proof. And for us, like we're just issuing the ZK snark that is a validity proof. So we just have to wait for the time it takes to generate a proof, which we're very confident we can get down to be relatively negligible. And then we just post the proof on chain. It gets verified. And it's quite fast. So I think compared to an optimistic approach, I'm a bit of a snark maxi. And I think <laughs> this applies even to my opinions of roll ups. But I think if a ZK roll up is technically feasible, which I think now it seems like they totally are, then it's actually a better solution than an optimistic roll-up because you don't have to wait for this seven day challenge period. Mm-hmm. So I also think the same thing of, you know, ZK or a snark- proof based. I like to call it proof based interop or a proof based roll up, but And I think proof-based interop is also similar. Like if it's technically possible, it's just strictly better because you don't have to wait for this challenge, period.
0: Mm -hmm. Is it more expensive somehow?
1: So you have to verify the proof. So that's potentially more expensive. But the whole point of assisting proof is is that it is cheap to verify. So it is like a little more expensive, but it's not that much more expensive.
0: Cool. Um, You talked about like what you've built so far is the girly Testnet to Gnosis. Tell me a little bit about that project, that deal. Like, how did that happen? And what are you maybe being used for? Are you testing a use case for this, or is it just like make the connection first?
2: Yeah. So, actually, when we were first beginning um, this like, research project on like potentially building like a ZK Snark enabled light client, we actually collaborated really closely with the folks at Gnosis to basically build this technology, because in their case, Gnosis Chain actually implements exactly the same algorithm as Ethereum consensus. Yeah. So if we could accomplish this ZK-like client for Ethereum, actually, this would enable a trust-minimized two-way arbitrary message passing bridge between Ethereum and Gnosis Chain. And I think maybe Martin actually talked about this on your podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, we got some funding from Gnosis DAO, and that was actually what funded our research, but basically, um, we first started off with the circuits. Um, we got it working. We coded the contracts. And basically, for the past like five months or so, we've been working on the system. And actually, just like a few days ago, we uh, deployed the demo publicly. And anyone can actually go ahead and try it. Like demo.sysync.xyz, the progress of sending a token from Gorly to uh, Gnosis chain.
0: Mm. Why Gnosis? Could you have done something else? Could you have done like Polygon as well? Like any equivalent EVM chain? Or was there like... When you say sort of it was the same, like, yeah, what what was it specifically about that that made it kind of a good starting point?
1: So as John mentioned, the the nice thing about Gnosis Chain is that they also use Ethereum proof of stake consensus Okay. Uh, for their chain. And so if we can have an Ethereum proof of stake like client, then we can have a like client running in Ethereum for Gnosis Chain. And then we can have a like client running in Gnosis Chain for Ethereum. And so then we can have like the bidirectional message passing we can deploy our Ethereum-like client today to any EVM chain. So like Avalanche, Polygon, you know, whatever else, uh, Gnosis, et cetera. Um, and also all the roll-ups. And like what that gets you is unidirectional message passing from Ethereum to the other chain. And actually, I think that's also quite interesting to do. Like there's actually a lot you can do with only passing messages one way from Ethereum. And as an example, for you know, a lot of uh, dApps have their governance living on Ethereum because their governance token lives on Ethereum, but it's never going to move off of Ethereum. So, Mm -hmm. you know, you conduct governance on Ethereum and then you use that to pass the message to control your deployment on another chain. And so that's like a really perfect use case of unidirectional messaging. You can also imagine like other kind of use cases. Um, There's something called BTC Relay from a long time ago that actually uses this unidirectional messaging concept in a way to do trust minimized swaps between Ethereum and Bitcoin. Uh, but at a high level, like the idea there is like say I have some you know token on Polygon and I want Ethereum on Ethereum or some other token on Ethereum. I can lock my token on Polygon in a smart contract. Uh, and then I can say, hey, world, like, if you give me, you know, one ETH on Ethereum, you can unlock this locked token. Mm-hmm. And so then someone can fill me on Ethereum and send a message of the fill to Polygon and the token will be unlocked on the other side. So actually, unidirectional messaging, I think, is actually quite powerful already. Like for governance use cases, there's I- I'm sure there's also use cases like we haven't even thought of that would be really cool. And so I think with our Ethereum-like client since In my opinion, I love Ethereum and I think most of the interesting state in the blockchain world lives on Ethereum and most of the interesting activity is on Ethereum. I think unidirectional messaging from Ethereum outwards is like already so powerful. And then, of course, once we start doing like proof of consensus for Tendermint, then we can start bridging back messages from Cosmos to Ethereum or the Cosmos ecosystem to Ethereum, Mm -hmm. uh, etc.
3: In terms of like the circuit complexity for ETH's consensus, like, what sort of the final circuit size you have like how many gates are roughly like how big is it and then like how big do you think say Tendermint is just to like get some relative scale of like how complex these look
2: i think for our ethereum circuit it has around 20 million constraints and like for people who that means nothing to that roughly accounts to around like potentially like 30 seconds of proving time and like a beefy machine if you use a gpu that could even go down even more so in terms of proving time that's actually really good, it's like really fast, and that's like essentially the latency you get on top of eth finality for any message to pass across. I think for Ethereum, they are actually quite smart because you know they have so many validators they need an efficient way to check signatures because it's completely impractical to actually check like four hundred thousand signatures. So they use the signature scheme called BLS, which has this property that's very easy to aggregate signatures. So you could take n signatures. And instead of doing n checks, you reduce it down to a single check. Mm. But in Tendermint, unfortunately, they use a signature scheme called EDDSA. Um, And in this case, it doesn't have this nice aggregation property. So even though Tendermint tends to have much less validators um, securing the network... The circuit size for the Tendermint circuit is actually very likely to be much bigger. I think we estimate that's going to be around 100 million constraints if we do it in the same proving system that we're using right now. And that would also be like a proving time of maybe like 50 seconds on CPU, uh, much less if it were on GPU.
1: I think in terms of complexity, like from implementation perspective, Tendermint is actually much easier than what we did for Ethereum. And this goes into like more technical detail, but in the BLS signature scheme, To verify a BLS signature, you need to implement this operation known as pairing, which is a function of, like, two elliptic curve points that results in a number, and, you know, that's just involved in the verification of a BLS signature. Pairing is very complicated to implement. It's, like, a complicated function. Um, and involves, like, having to deal with elliptic curves over different fields and all this stuff. For EDDSA when you verify an EDDSA signature, it's much more simple. You're just doing some like scalar multiplication and addition of elliptic curve points. So you don't have to implement this complicated pairing thing. And so I think conceptually, EDDSA is much more simple to implement, but because it's not aggregatable, the circuit size is larger. BLS, conceptually harder to implement, but then our circuit is 20 million constraints.
3: Yeah. You know, I guess one question regarding that is, so you have this sort of like validator sampling method. In the case of Cosmos, though, you're not guaranteed that the validator overlap between two IBC chains is particularly high. Like potentially, I'm just trying to think in terms of like the worst case outcomes. Like, how do you know how much of a validator overlap or like sort of that is needed in IBC versus? Because c- I I'm imagining that's sort of important unless you can sample both separately and like get two-thirds on both sides does that make sense
1: you're saying for two different chains
3: for do two different cosmos chains yeah like if you were trying to do bi-directional you would you could do it I guess with two very disjoint validator sets but you probably need some amount of
0: overlap between them right mm, there's a role called the relayer which like can or it doesn't always have to be done by the validators that's usually passing that. I don't know if that helps answer your question, but it's not always that you're having validators on either side talking to each other, to themselves rather.
3: Right, but the relayers are unincentivized. True, and that's a problem. Some sort of weird (laughs) problem there. Yeah,
1: Yeah, I think when we say we do like a like client for Cosmos, I think we're actually being pretty imprecise. I think what we mean is we would do a like client for a specific Cosmos chain. So Mm. the way our like client works It's very simple. Like we keep a commitment to the validator set and then we just process updates and we verify like two thirds of the validators have signed off on this block. So we'll like keep track of this. We'll keep this block header around. And then every so often the validator set rotates. And so then we'll, if there's a validator set rotation, we'll just like update the commitment. And so we only would make like a like client for a single Cosmos chain at a time, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, 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 yeah. It almost sounds then like, are, are you like IBC? Like, would yeah. each one yeah, of those, yeah. like, <laughs> it would implement a different module that, in, like, maybe they have IBC running, but they also have succinct running, which will link them to something else, but with a similar concept of, like, these like clients that live on your chain.
2: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it'd basically be we re-implement IBC inside of Snark, and this would essentially allow for every Cosmos chain to have the same security as an IBC bridge to another cosmos chain but this time actually to ethereum. Yeah. And if you integrate that with our current existing technology which is the ethly client, you can actually have a two-way bridge from ethereum to any cosmos app chain and it can sort of be like basically a, a very trust minimized bridging solution that every cosmos app could use.
0: Mm. I mean there's another model here right? Like there's isn't there people doing just like they're doing IBC on ethereum? sort of saying like, well, if we have IBC on Ethereum, then we can link directly to everything on Cosmos. Do you know what I mean? Like trying to bring that over. But in your case, you would have each Cosmos chain implement this this new thing to to connect to Ethereum, if I'm understanding correctly. I also, like, I haven't spoken to the team that's doing, I know that there is a ZK IBC that's doing this. I haven't spoken to them, so I don't know, like, what the challenge with that is. But yeah, it helps me actually paint a picture of what you're on. Oh,
3: one thing we actually didn't mention um, since you brought up Relayers is that succinct has Relayers as well. So maybe do you, do you guys want to talk through kind of like the role of Relayers in your system?
1: Yeah, we spent a lot of time talking about the SNARKs, but I actually think putting together the whole system working end-to-end is the SNARKs are only like a small part of that. Um, so the way our system works, right, is if I have like an Ethereum-like client running on Gnosis, then and let's just take the unidirectional case at first is I'll have an operator who like reads Ethereum's block headers and reads like the validator attestations. And then, you know, every epoch, it'll generate a proof that the validators have come to consensus on the, you know, a particular header in the block. Uh, and so in this case, you're verifying like two thirds of these validators have like signed off on this header. And then it'll send an update to the smart contract running on Gnosis, that's like running this Ethereum-like client, and it'll say, hey, here's this new bl- block header, and here's a proof that the header is valid. And so then the Gnosis smart contract will process that transaction and keep that header in its memory, um, or in the smart contract storage. So there's an operator, and anyone can run this operator. like It's totally permissionless. Uh, because you know any all this data is public and like the circuits are public, so anyone can run this operator and generate these proofs and update the like client on gnosis. There's another level of this, which is like actually passing the messages. So just because you have a like client doesn't mean you can like pass messages. We have another layer to do that, uh, which we're calling like the arbitrary message bridge. So we have a smart contract uh, on Ethereum that's like the sending contract where you can send messages to from any other ethereum contract. And then we have a receiving or executing contract on Gnosis that will basically, you have a relayer who watches for messages on Ethereum and then will send an execute transaction on Gnosis, for example. And it'll say, okay, for a message on Ethereum, I'm going to send an execute transaction on Gnosis with proof that the message is included in this Ethereum smart contract. So what the receiving Gnosis contract will do is it'll talk to the like client and it'll get like the state root from the light client. And then it'll say it'll verify like an account proof and a storage proof like that verifies this message was actually sent on Ethereum. Uh, and again, with the relayer, it's also permissionless, like anyone can send these messages, and anyone can relay these messages. Uh, so yeah, that's like how the whole system works end to end and how the light clients actually use to pass messages. And then you can imagine the other directions like also the exact same.
2: Yeah, so the cost would be to send a message, you have to s- Pay the cost of like storing the message in like Ethereum state, so that could either be storing it into a storage slot or emitting an event. And then on the receiving end, you have to pass in a Merkle proof and then validate the Merkle proof against the state root stored into the light client. And then there's also some gas cost associated to that. But end to end, it's actually very cheap um, for users.
0: I sort of want to just check. So like you, you talk a lot about like the message passing. Can people pass tokens? I guess. I mean, I guess so. If you, they can lock things, but like. And I know, you know, you're not using the term bridge here, but I like a lot of this sounds like layers of bridges that I've spoken to before. Like Axelar has sort of the message part of it. So like, I'm just curious, like, yeah, are, like could one build on top of what you've built tokens? And I, I don't know what else you can build on bridges.
1: <laughs> yeah, when you pass messages, you can pass any state. So we have our demo is actually like a token bridge between... If, between Ethereum and Gnosis. Okay. And so what we have is we have this bridge contract where you deposit your tokens you want to pass into. They get locked. Then the bridge contract will pass a message through the arbitrary message bridge saying, UMA locks these tokens on Ethereum, yeah. give her the corresponding tokens on Gnosis. And then the execute message will call the withdrawal contract that will mint you the tokens. So you can, with arbitrary message passing, you can like build anything you want. Mm-hmm. Do
0: you feel like in building it this way, though, is it safer in a way? Because you have this like light like client and you don't have, I don't know, custody or you're not like, I, I'm just curious if, if you feel like these solutions are more immune to the sort of bridge hacks that we've seen more recently, like is there is it different? Because I've always gotten the impression like IBC, and maybe I'm deluded here, but I've always thought like IBC seems safer than some of the the bridge kind of proposals that we've seen. And yeah, it hasn't been hacked so far.
2: I think up to implementation details which there could be bugs. I think this is pretty much like very close to the end game design for bridging. I think just you can't do better than verifying that all the validators have like signed off on some consa- or signed off on a header and that you're like doing exactly what an honest validator does to check the state of a chain. So I think in that front it's probably like theoretically the most secure. Mm-hmm. I think potentially things that people could be worried about is you know like smart contract bugs. Or zk circuit bugs, but actually, I think I would argue that um, like these are implementation risks that exist in any cryptographic system, and that's just something we have to manage and we
3: can work on over time. Mm. Yeah, how do you think about so? Like when you think about IBC, right? It took forever because like it was formally verified, like client was formally verified under like a bunch of different sort of conditions. How do you think about dealing with uh, verification and testing when you have to think about both the surface area of the snark verification, like bugs in the the snark, as well as bugs in sort of like the networking layer, the, the like, you know, serialization layer, stuff like that. In, in fact, you know, like arguably a lot of the bridge hacks, or at least a lot of the ones that were not just, Hey, they're only, there was really only one key were sort of due to kind of like, these like lower layer things messing up like the optimism bug that wasn't attacked in the wild, but really it's like wormhole stuff like that. They all had these like rehypothecation issues because a message was like deserialized incorrectly effectively. And it, it didn't like cause like create balance. So I guess like, how do you, how do you think about that whole space and, you know, and, and like actually verifying and testing a circuit because like obviously, it's like extremely nascent look like like the yeah. thing we talked about earlier with ninety nine versus a hundred right that that's like that could be a buffer overflow in like a normal piece of code. so mm. yeah,
2: I think as a team, we really care about this, and actually like even I think for like there's obviously really much more advanced proving systems that we could use today. But actually, as a team, we decided to use. Um, groth 16 which is one of the most battle-tested proving systems, and we wanted to also use one of the most battle-tested uh, tool stacks that exist for circuits, because pragmatically these are the only systems that have a, have really stood the battle of like production. I think also on the formal verification front, actually with circuits, it's really interesting because a lot of these circuits are inherently just arithmetic uh, computation graphs. So actually we've been, uh, formal verification in zk is also something that's very much being developed right now, and that could be really interesting. As basically the core primitives we're using are just like big integer add, big integer multiply and stuff like that. And that stuff can all be formally verified uh, hopefully very soon. But I totally agree with you that like there's a lot of risks here. And I think, you know, one thing that I think we plan to do, for example, is basically just be very pragmatic about this. Like, for example, any Merkle proof library, like hopefully we can just use like the optimism one, which has also been in production for a really long time. And I think these are just choices that we can make as a team to
3: reduce these risks. Yeah, actually one question, um maybe a slight tangent, but like have there been any sort of like overflow, underflow type of bugs in circuits like in production ever? Like maybe not like production production like Zcash, but I mean cuz like obviously I guess they've had the inflation bug and a couple other things, but more like bugs you've heard of cuz like I feel like that to me is the ultimate wild west in cryptocurrency is actually like circuit level bugs that like uh, maybe you like didn't didn't like initialize a register correctly somewhere and you or like the compiler you know made a mistake in in like registration like have you guys heard of any any cool bugs because like i I actually don't know I've never heard of any, but like obviously there have to be some.
1: Yeah, I know Tornado Cash a while ago had a bug, but it, that was a missing constraint. Like instead of assign doing an equality constraint assignment, they just did like an equals assignment. And I think Kobe was actually involved in finding that bug. Mm-hmm. Um, but that was a while ago, and that wasn't it wasn't some complicated like buffer overflow thing. It was just like a simple thing that was missing. I haven't personally heard of anything, although, yeah, I'm sure it exists.
2: One thing is, like, it it could be a case that even though a circuit is under-constrained, it could be, like, exponentially difficult to actually be able to use that constraint to do some really bad, nefarious damage. Because just because you have one degree of freedom doesn't necessarily mean that it gives you controllable freedom on the output you care about in the circuit. Um, I think another interesting thing that me and Uma have been exploring is, like, we can actually add a lot of safeguards inside our light line itself. So one thing we've actually been discussing is, you know, let's say that there is a bug in our circuit. What does a bug mean? A bug means that even though the validators didn't sign off on some header, we say that um, we approve it in our circuit. But what you can do in your like client is if for the same block number, there are two block headers that both passed all these checks, then we clearly have some situation where like something went wrong in our system, Right clearly, for some reason, there's two equally valid block headers for the same block number, and that should never happen. And that's like a sort of assertion we can add inside our like client, and we can like change some flag from like, oh... So you
3: don't support forking then? Like, what what if there is actually sort of like a long fork uh, that then reconciles itself uh, in the six block finality period? Like, there is some sort of like, you are making some choice there that might be slightly different than the ETH stock fork choice rule.
2: So... What actually happens under the hood with even the ETH validators is like at some point in time they decide to change the fork ID of the chain. And that's like something we just can't get around. Like basically we either have to schedule these fork upgrades or we have to redeploy the light client. So that's just something we can't get around um, due to the nature of that how Ethereum works. And that's actually something that all these ETH validators already do, from my understanding.
3: Okay. Cool. Yeah, the only reason I ask is like, you know, I think obviously there's an amazing set of things you can do with SNARKs. But I feel like, you know, if, if Kobe and, like, three people are the only people in the world who've ever, like, really found a, a ZK, a bug in a circuit, <laughs> there must be, like, a ton. Because, like, in a lot of ways, I actually am not even actually worried as much about the circuit writers personally, as much as I'm worried about the compiler. Yeah. And like there being like state that is shared outside of like snark evaluation and and state that is like commingled somehow, and you can like read and write to the same spot. And like that's very hard to find. And the compiler, you know, could hide that from you because it's like it's sort of generating all that code. Like, how do you guys view the state of security for snarks and like over time how that evolves because like yeah it just it i'm not trying to scare people i'm uh, I'm just trying to say that like it is it does feel like this huge surface area
1: yeah i think there is a huge surface area but one thing i will say is like any system has like a big surface area like for example if you look at a optimistic roll-up like they also have a lot of smart contracts on chain that are like coordinating all these games and you know they have to worry about like a particular compiled version of a gap like any complex system has a lot of surface area for for risk. Like actually our smart contracts are pretty small because a lot of the complexity is in the snark, which is nice. Now, of course, okay, auditing a snark is, is also hard. I think that's like one of the reasons we decided to, you know, make our proofs in a proving system that has been around for the longest time and has actually been used in production and like tornado cash and things like that is then you can be more confident that there isn't, you know, some random surprise in the compiler or whatever. Even though, like, there are a lot of really new, exciting proving systems coming out that could potentially make our performance a lot better, I think from a security perspective, it seems simpler to do something that's, like, older, that, you know, maybe isn't the most efficient or the most performant, but, you know, people can feel better about the security properties of. Um, So I think that's how we, like, kind of think about it how does anything really gain trust and security? It's like, it's been used for a long time. It hasn't been, you know, hacked or exploited. Like that's how they figure out, you know, whether hash functions are safe. And so I kind of view it in a similar way. I think there are efforts to do like formal verification. You know, I think they're making progress on it, but I think probably the tried and true way of like, you know, figuring out whether something's secure, which is like, let's just wait and see if it gets hacked is like, also applies here.
3: It is true that unfortunately bridges are the greatest bug bounty that's ever existed. Oh.
0: So. Yeah. When you're talking about this, like vulnerabilities in Snarks, like I'm going to do a little side plug here, but like ZK Hack, what we do with that event is basically to like do these ZK puzzle competitions. Where you're supposed to basically hack a ZK circuit or something, something around it. And we try to, it's always modeled after like historic hacks. And I'll, put the link in in the show notes to that because it's kind of a resource it's like a history of things that have happened so far might give people a that's bit because of a, you
3: have one you you host it with one of the three people in the world who's ever found <laughs> of <who>, these. <laughs>
0: who, kobe kobe Gherkin, who's who sometimes co-hosts the show too but um but yeah but i think like there is an effort i mean at least that is an effort to like allow people to be aware of it because i think you do need more eyes on this like, you do need people to also, like, know techniques to hack these things so that they can be hacked so that we hopefully hack them before they're in production or, you know. I,
3: I just actually think there probably needs to be, like, a, a ZK and Snarks and probably Stark, although, you know, that's a little bit out, like, before is live and stuff, like, really thoroughly. I think, like, there sort of needs to be a uh, a separate version of, like, Code Arena, Um <laughs> or like Immunify specialized for this, not mm. not like the normal smart contract. Like I, I feel like somehow like that has to get off the ground and I, it probably will once people start using things like succinct a lot.
2: Yeah, the cool thing is like you can make like on-chain bounties. So like if someone can hack a circuit, you can actually do that. You can encode that as a smart contract on Ethereum and like mm. give out some award.
0: John you and, and Uma, you both mentioned formal verification efforts. Can you share a little bit about like what is going on there? This is the first I heard about it, and it's like, yeah, like who's doing that? And maybe what what groups are are trying to do that?
1: There's this auditing firm called Veridice that I think is trying to do formal verification for circuits. And they've managed to formally verify some big int libraries that are used for, you know, elliptic curve arithmetic in these circuits that we're using. So that's great. Um, I think... Formal verification. Yeah, that different people have different thoughts on formal yeah. verification. I honestly don't have very strong opinions on it, but I know other people do.
0: Maybe it's not the only check, but it's a good check to have as well.
3: I mean, that sounds like a fun episode to yeah. do of like what's the difference between non-ZK and ZK formal verification? How do you handle the state isolation between the like non-circuit version and the circuit version? Because like I feel like the state isolation to me is like the hard part like i feel like somehow that that part in my head that's like i don't know how i don't know how well anyone knows the entire pipeline of these compilers and it took Solidity a while i feel like to find some of these like very nuanced bugs and like solana's had a ton of these bugs where so th- these are the my favorite types of i mean okay when i say favorite i mean I, they're the most intellectually interesting they're also probably the w- one that should be like keeping you up at night but it's these bugs where you can actually Send malicious code that's run in the VM and then jailbreak the VM and read the val- and write to the validator's machine locally. And so, like the smart contract bug, like flows all the way through to like the validator running it or like whoever's. And those those bugs are crazy. And I, I like I kind of feel like a lot of the newer chains have had those. ETH kind of got very lucky that it had like this window where no one bothered like fucking with it for a while. <laughs> I mean, they, people did fuck with it in Shanghai in twenty sixteen, but like I feel like. At, The compiler level, it it avoided these supply chain attacks. Not again. I'm not trying to scare the shit out of people. I'm I'm really (laughs) just trying to point out that like there's a whole new world of this stuff that will be super cool.
0: I want to go back to the company, succinct. How big is your team? How long have you been around? And where where are you headed? Like at what stage exactly are you? You Said sort of said you've deployed on Gurley and on Gnosis Chain, but yeah, like yeah. How big are you? How far along are you? What can we expect?
1: Yeah, so over the summer, uh, when we started working on it, like late May, uh, it was just me and John, and we kind of built out the whole thing over the summer together, the two of us. And honestly, like the circuits are just one part of it. Like we built out the snarks for consensus, but we had to build out the operator, the relayer, the smart contracts, the front end. John's like somehow also like good at design. So, you know, we had to do all this stuff. And then right now we, you know, we're trying to grow the team. So if anyone's listening, and I'm very interested in ZK or anything else, like, uh, yeah, hit us up on we're on Twitter, at the labs, or you can email us. But yeah, we're trying to grow the team and looking for people like all across the stack. And I think we're working on basically taking our existing thing that we built out over the past few months and really productionizing it. So we're in the middle of an audit. Uh, We're in the middle of like gas optimizing our smart contracts. And we're, going to productionize this and you know we're working closely with the people at gnosis to build a bridge a uh, bi-directional trust minimized bridge between ethereum and gnosis which which is great for their chain and then we have like a few other dApps that we're working with closely you know to explore some of these other unidirectional use cases from ethereum outwards like the governance use case and some other use cases so that's like you can expect to see all that stuff coming out and we really want to go into production like probably on the order of like a few months like after mm. the audit and after everything feels really good. And then, yeah, the other people on our team are working on doing proofs of consensus for the other chains. So I think the Cosmos ecosystem and Tendermint's really interesting to us, um, especially with like IBC. They're like super aligned on, you know, their vision of Interop. And so, yeah, we're also like working on getting that working. And yeah, that's like the stage of the company. We we recently raised some money and are hiring people to work on all this stuff.
0: Cool. Going back a little bit to the beginning of this episode and sort of like joining the ZK space, do you have any advice to people who are just arriving, who want to maybe build something? <laughs> hmm. Don't do it. <laughs> let's see <if> I'm here. <laughs> <laughs>
3: well, I, okay, okay, maybe, maybe let's.
2: No uh,
0: inspirational talk from these two.
2: <laughs> actually, like me and Uma were actually trying really hard to think about like, cool ideas in ZK to work on. I think there's a lot of cool ideas, but a lot of them are a bit, like, further out. Like, I think this whole, like, ZK identity space is, like, really, really cool. But as Uma said, like, it feels a lot more like a product question, and I think that needs to be figured out. But yeah, I think if people are, like, interested in getting ZK, it's actually a really great time, I think. You know, it's a really great time. It's still early, it's still small, and I think there's probably a lot of interesting applications that people haven't even thought of that's possible. So I would highly encourage, like, anyone in the space who's interested to start
1: Yeah, I think just, like, diving in, trying out some code, not being afraid. Like, even though things don't have great documentation, to be honest, I think even with Googling around and, like, asking the right questions, like, people are generally pretty friendly and, like, willing to help out. So I think just diving in and not being scared of diving in would be, like, my my advice. Cool.
3: If you had to say a nice thing about a non-ZK bridge, pick any bridge... (laughs) (laughs) What nice thing would you say about them?
1: I think there are some other bridges out there that, like, the proof-based approach is very pure. And I I think the optimistic solutions are actually quite interesting. I just think, like, you know, I'm a snark maxi, Mm -hmm. so I think, like, if the ZK Bridge is possible, it's better. But they're also, like, I would say pretty pure as well. But, you know, with an impure solution, you can sometimes have, like, faster bridging or things like that. So it's like, there's always trade-offs to all these things.
0: <laughs> Definitely.
3: Okay, that was the most hedged, yeah. nice thing you could have said. <laughs> that, was like, that was like, like, if this is neutral, you were like, just barely.
0: <laughs> <up>.
3: <laughs> in, in a world where you have ZK uh, portholes, like bridge-like constructs that don't want to be called bridges, what does that mean for rollups? Is the world going to have fewer rollups when you actually trust the bridges, or you know they're supposed to be sort of complementary, but like they could actually be substitutes in some sense? Yeah, I think it offers like a very interesting alternative
2: to like if you're a DApp and you want like high scalability, like maybe instead of building a rollup now, you can just build like a Cosmos app chain or your own app chain that just directly connects hooks into ETH um, with like a proof based bridge. And I think one interesting thing here is, like, I know, you know, the Cosmos people have been thinking about this for a while. And I think also Ron from Eigenlayer recently wrote this, like, paper about, like, running like clients on, like, different L1s on each other to also gain the advantages of, like, mesh security. So somehow it feels like these, like, proof-based like clients can sort of enable both the roll-up future for Ethereum, but also a world where maybe mesh security becomes the future. I'm not sure.
3: Yeah, and for I guess for listeners, mesh security is where when you have many chains, they actually are able to pull together security. You know, right now when you cross a bridge, your net security is the security of the minimum, the weakest link. It's the minimum overall chains you traverse. Whereas you could make it the sum or like somewhere in between minimum and sum. Cosmos people always sort of have the right idea of bad, wrong formalism. And they didn't formalize it. They just were like, "Oh yeah, whatever. We'll like somehow do this weird staking derivative and like share security without explaining how or why it worked." Uh, but like, yeah, Shiraum has this new paper that's really good at trying to formalize the, the correct intuition but wrong sort of description that I think in the Cosmos ecosystem people have had. But also rollups are moving in that direction too. Like all the EVM rollups seem to be like, "Hey, we're gonna have app chains." For, so it's like, I, I think I think it's sort of inevitable.
1: Huh. Yeah, especially if you don't want a centralized sequencer. I could go on a huge rant about centralized sequencers. Like, people are going to have to figure out this problem.
3: Mm. And not just make another layer one.
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. In the process, in
3: the process. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah.
1: All right, on that
0: note, I want to say thank you, Uma and John, for coming on the show and sharing with us succinct and also kind of your journeys into ZK. Thanks a lot.
1: Yeah, this was fun. Good to see you guys.
2: Yeah,
3: thank you so much.
0: Thanks, Tarun, for being on again.
3: Always happy to be here.
0: All right. I want to say thank you to the podcast team, Rachel, Tanya, and Henrik. And to our listeners, thanks for listening.